Welcome back to the Mulpix podcast. Today our guest is Anne Condon. Also with me today are Boya. Hello. Eric. Hi. Georgios. Hi. And I'm Hannah. Anne Condon is a professor of computer science at the University of British Columbia, of which she was formerly head of department and also a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. She is known for her extensive work in computational complexity theory and design of algorithms in the context of bioinformatics, hardware verification, combinatorial auctions, and of course, DNA computing, as well as the numerous awards for her work in computer science from bodies, including the ACM. She has also received many awards for her leadership in advancing women in computing and has previously held the NSERC General Motors Canada Chair for Women in Science. She completed her bachelor's degree at University College Cork and her doctorate at the University of Washington. Anne, hi. Hi, Hannah. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming on. So I wanted to, like I start most of these podcasts, I wanted to find out how you got into DNA computing. But I think it's also interesting because you got into DNA computing really from basically the very beginning. So, so how did that happen? Yeah, so I remember when I saw Len Edelman's paper back in, I think it was October or November of 1990. I, re- I remember pretty pretty well exactly because that's a, that's when my son was born. Pretty much was the same week, <laughs> and uh, I thought it was exciting. I went to a conference actually right away at that time, and Dick Lipton was there. I had collaborated <clears throat> with Dick, and he seemed super excited about some theory questions related to the work. So that's how I got hooked. <clears throat> I had just gotten tenure. I figured I could, it was a good time to try new things. And so I, I decided I would, I wanted to learn more about DNA computing. Pretty early on, I think it was well understood that it wasn't going to be a panacea for solving MP-complete problems, even though that's how it was initially pitched to some degree by Len Edelman. So I decided I, I would love to really work in a more collaborative fashion. And so I wanted to find collaborators that that would be interested in the project too. And very fortunately, after talking around quite a bit at the University of Wisconsin, I I kept asking people if they'd be interested and everybody said, well, you should really talk to Lloyd Smith, but he's super busy. So I kept him at the bottom of my list. But finally, when I ran out of other people, I emailed him and and I kind of got a response back like within half an hour, like, yeah, let's have lunch, let's talk. And so that's how we got going. So what were those first questions that you guys were trying to solve on the theory side at the very beginning? Yeah, so uh, I think initially at the beginning, so to some degree, we were focused on NP-complete problems and how we could come up with schemes that would be better than simple brute force trial possible solutions, which obviously wasn't going to scale. But within the context of the group I was working with at the University of Wisconsin, Actually, there was a more practical question. They, they thought it would work better to have DNA strands tethered to a surface rather than having the strands floating in solution. And so another natural question is, how would you compute with strands tethered to a surface? And in, to think about that question, we stuck with 3SAT, which is an NP-complete problem, not because we ultimately wanted to solve it, but because it was a good problem to start with, to think through computing on the surface. So we figured out uh, a set of basic operations that you could do on strands on a surface and how you could use those operations to filter uh, a big set of truth assignments for the SAT problem and find the ones that actually satisfy the instance of SAT. So before you got into DNA computing, you were big in fields such as game theory and lots of other things. So when you moved into DNA computing, did you see it as kind of a big change from what you did before or were there kind of unexpected similarities? Again, in, initially I, w- I was most comfortable with problems that had a nice theoretical flavor and there, there were problems. Some of it was just modeling. How do you model computation on a surface? It was different than modeling computation and solution Another type of problem that intrigued me was how do you code information in DNA strands? So that's kind of a coding theory problem, and it it sounded like a fun problem. Most people approached it in a fairly combinatorial way, so it was a natural problem to look at. Um, 
later on, I got interested in secondary structure and how do you predict nucleic acid secondary structure, which is, again, a, a problem domain that's quite comfortable for me because you know, classical algorithmic techniques like dynamic programming are typically used for that type of problem. So mostly at the start, even though I was in a collaborative environment, I was staying fairly close to my comfort zone of algorithms and complexity. But over time, I started to look more broadly at problems I wanted to work on. So I, th I think that happened mostly because after a while of developing slightly faster dynamic programming algorithms for predicting secondary structures or for handling pseudonauts, you realize that actually the algorithms that are out there, which, which tend to compute minimum free energy structures, they're not that slow. They're, they're pretty decent dynamic programming algorithms. And so shaving off a small factor of the time complexity isn't really that revolutionary. And if your free energy model is wrong, then it doesn't really matter whether you get the answer quickly or super quickly, it's going to be the wrong answer. So I decided I, that I got, more, I got more interested in how could I improve the energy model instead of focusing on how could I speed up the algorithm, assuming that somebody else provided me with the right energy model. And that was quite a shift for me in terms of how to approach and think about a problem and how to have impact. So I guess trying to improve the energy model is getting quite a bit more involved in sort of the biophysics and kind of understanding of how these are working chemically rather than, as you're saying, kind of doing incremental improvements in the algorithmic side. Um, did you know much about the biophysics of nucleic acids before or how did that go? I didn't, didn't know much about the biophysics of nucleic acids. I still actually don't know a whole lot about the biophysics of nucleic acids, but I keep learning and I, I really enjoy the interdisciplinary environment of the field and, and how you can learn from different people over time. So I knew just as I did when I got started that this was something I would have to do in collaboration with an expert who would have a lot of insight. And somebody who stood out in that respect was David Matthews for RNA thermodynamics. He had worked with Doug Turner, and he's actually was still at the same institution as Doug Turner, and they had done the experiments from which parameters were determined. And if you look at how they inferred thermodynamic parameters from their experiments, it didn't seem particularly sophisticated computation. They weren't using the best inference methods of the day. And I had a wonderful student at the time, Marella Andronescu, who said, well, why don't we talk to Dave Matthews and collaborate with him? And she was fearless, much more than I was. So we went to a conference and she just rounded in Dave Matthews and said enthusiastically, like she did everything, she said, we're love to work with you to figure out better parameters. And she want, also wanted to do more machine learning type research, which I wasn't particularly doing, but she wanted to do that type of research. And Dave was wonderful. He was delighted to collaborate with us and we got going from there. So you don't have to be an expert really to get, to get started. You just have to surround yourself with the right people. Did you ever get a chance to do some of those experiments yourself or, have, or go into a wet lab? Uh, not really. Uh, once when I was on sabbatical at Caltech, my former student Chris took me into a wet lab and we did a little experiment. But I, that, that was as far as I've gotten. I, I think what was that experiment? Uh, uh, it was just some very basic exercise from a class that Lulu had taught. I don't even remember what it was, but I was super careful and it turned out okay. But I think I wouldn't be the best person for that kind of work, to be honest, over time. It's very, I really admire people who can, who can make experiments work. So on the side of um, parameterizing the RNA thermodynamic model, do you think there's still more work to be done there, or have we kind of gotten as good as we can get only considering a secondary structure with RNA, or do we have to start considering those tertiary interactions before we can really predict RNA structure perfectly? Great question. I think there's a lot more we could do that would broadly be along the same lines as the work that, that Morella started and other people started. 
so I think, you know, I think coaxial stacking has been looked at, but I'm not sure we have the best parameters there. Uh, there's other secondary structure features that we could probably infer better. Since we did that work, machine learning techniques have evolved. And so I think there's even more sophisticated methods that one could apply. And finally, I think access to more data, of course, would be hugely valuable. The work we did was actually with RNA and not DNA because there's better data sets of RNA out there than DNA. So I think it would be fantastic if we could get more data, thermodynamic data to, to, to do inference, and we, we could definitely improve the models. Um, whether or not we need to look at tertiary structure, it certainly wouldn't hurt. Um, yeah, I, do, I don't have a strong sense of that. I do think that in addition to uh, thermodynamics, we obviously need to be able to predict kinetics. And that is something I'm actively working on in the field. There's, it's just we've barely scratched the surface, unlike thermodynamics, where there has been quite a bit of progress. Do you have any favorite results from uh, structure prediction for nucleic acids that you've either discovered yourself or come across over the last couple of decades? Uh, so from on the algorithmic side, one of my students, Hosna, and uh, independently, actually, but then we collaborated, Holin Chen, we came up with an algorithm for predicting pseudo-knotted secondary structures. And it was faster. It's n to the 5 instead of n to the 6. And it can predict a really nice range of secondary structures. So I think from an algorithmic standpoint, that's one of the results I'm maybe most excited about. Um, and then maybe that ties back to Eric's question. So uh, we know very little about the thermodynamics of pseudo-knotted structures. So again, while we have this algorithm, I and we actually did take, get some data on pseudo-knotted structures and try to train our parameters on that, I think that's another area where it would be great to see more progress. Talking of um, kind of the amount of progress being made in structure prediction for nucleic acids. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like per person, there hasn't been much more progress in structure prediction in nucleic acids compared to proteins. Um, it seems like a lot more people work on protein structure prediction than nucleic acid structure prediction. I wonder why you think that is. Um, and can, can, we, like, can we learn anything from people doing protein structure prediction? Yeah, again, great questions. There is a lot bigger investment in protein structure prediction and the methods employed there obviously have uh, progressed quite a bit over the last decade, most recently with techniques of Google you know, that are outperforming uh, traditional techniques. So it does seem like deep learning is a powerful approach to protein structure prediction. And presumably, techniques like that could be useful for RNA structure prediction. Again, I think data is a challenge. We have a lack of RNA data, structural data, to really train models on. And I'll say, in addition, that while those techniques are exciting and valuable, I think there's also pros and cons to using machine learning techniques versus building mechanistic models. Uh, that predict structure and maybe provide more insight as to why things work the way they do and how you might therefore design strands that behave in ways that you want them to behave. So I think there's a lot to be gained research-wise from looking at both types of approaches to structure prediction for DNA and RNA as well as proteins and using the best of both approaches. Do you think now that, for example, AlphaFold and, and Rosetta have just come out with also a machine learning model, do you think people are kind of throwing themselves too far into the deep learning models and forgetting about doing the mechanistic side, as you're saying? I, I think that's a general trend. Everyone is excited about deep learning approaches. And yeah, I, I, I I guess I'm a big fan of mechanistic approaches, and I think we should not throw them out. Uh, but yeah, in the short term, I think we'll see a lot of people drawn to the low-hanging fruit and using um, machine learning models. But I think in the long run, we will be able to integrate both types of approaches, and we need to do it in intelligent ways.
this might be a bit of an out there question, but right now we use deep learning models because they end up being faster to predict a structure as well as being more accurate in the end. But like you said, they have no intuition as to why that structure is correct. Would it be possible to take the more mechanistic models and then kind of learn their mechanisms? Is that something that deep learning could eventually do? Or is that kind of misunderstanding the problem? I think that's possible. I also think you can take a mechanistic approach, pinpoint why it's slow, where, where is it slowest, and use machine learning approaches as approximations of the slowest parts of mechanistic models. So I think there's lots of different and creative ways one can integrate both types of approaches so that you can, you can really benefit from the best of both. I, I also think that there are software engineering challenges so that, that often the, the reason things don't work quickly are, is because of legacy software or we're not using the best that's available with current software techniques. Um, and so that hinders progress as well. So I guess with predicting structure, kind of we have pretty good algorithms. As you say, we could improve the particular implementations and we can get some shortcuts with kind of combining machine learning and mechanistic approaches. Do you think in DNA computing there are any big unsolved theoretical problems in, in other areas where maybe there are big um, kind of huge complexity jumps or, or other theoretical jumps that could still be made and, and could be really helpful? Uh-huh. So I, I've, one of the area, more theoretical areas that I found fascinating is understanding what we can do with models like chemical reaction networks. So I, that's a, definitely the, an area that's closest to my traditional background in complexity theory. There has been a huge amount of progress in understanding what we can do over, with this model in the last 10 years, but I'm still amazed when I see new work coming out explaining new ideas of how to use these models. Uh, one example that I really like recently is by Marco Vasic and others using chemical reaction networks that are rate independent to simulate uh, basic units of neural network models. And uh, I, I find that to be very intriguing. Um, there are also other connections between machine learning and chemical reaction networks that people like Manoj Gopalakrishnan and David Poole uh, in Eric Winfrey's lab and others have discovered that suggest how we could compute with chemical reaction networks and, and ultimately with DNA in very creative ways. So I think there's a lot that could be done there. A second area that I've gotten interested in very recently, thanks to a postdoc in my lab right now, is um, DNA strand displacement systems. So that's uh, a model that's intermediate in nature, in, in my view, between uh, chemical reaction networks and actual DNA implementations in the lab. So it lets you think about ways to use DNA to simulate models like chemical reaction network, but also other models like neural networks and logic circuits, etc. And there, the way that the the high-level models are compiled down to intermediate-level models is, like, there's a few standard ways that it's done, but maybe there are other ways to do it that we haven't thought about yet, and that could be a lot more effective. So that's another area that I'm excited about where I think we could, we could, we could make huge advances. Yeah, I guess we kind of scratched the surface of what you can do with interacting molecules of DNA and he, and I guess we settled on a couple of different schemes that people have come up with but he, he knows what what might be possible in the future with the um CRN examples you were mentioning so do you think that there are still big theoretical advantages or do, would you say it's more kind of programming new systems like you know for example the um implementations of machine learning and and your networks so do you view these more as like we're learning more how to program these CRN models or, yeah, are there big theoretical jumps to make? Yeah, uh, probably both, uh, both big theoretical jumps and also just figuring out clever ways to use CRNs to simulate uh, other models of interest. I think we could, there's room for both types of work. 
so you, you mentioned when we were talking about the history of the field that one of the big promises of CRNs and chemical computing is the, the solving of NP-hard problems, presumably through massive parallelism. Um, what do you think are the barriers toward actually implementing that hugely parallel processing? Because I, I feel like I haven't seen something yet that really solved a problem that a silicon computer also couldn't solve yet. Right. Yeah. And, and again, I think overly focusing on NP-complete problems is probably not where the field should go. Uh, at the same time, I think there's a lot we could do if we could scale up the simulation of chemical reaction networks. Uh, they are inherently parallel, but there seem to be a lot of challenges in doing that. So we know how to compile chemical reaction networks down to DNA. But if you look at the actual experimental demonstrations, uh, they're quite small. And I think we're still getting our heads around why. So one obvious problem that was identified early on is the problem of leak. And it's wonderful that Boya is here because she was one of the people who uh, thought through, along with Chris Thatchuk and others, how we could address that problem when in the implementation of DNA strand displacement systems. And there's evidence, uh, thanks to Boya and others, that the, the methods developed to avoid leak, so where DNA strand displacement takes place even though it shouldn't according to the specification, so you want to avoid that, that it works. And even though it works, I haven't seen huge demonstrations of it. Like it, I haven't seen somebody say, okay, now we know that we can avoid the problem of leaks, so why don't we scale up some of our earlier work and, and uh, dramatically and see what happens. So I think we're still waiting to see that happen. And in, apart from leak, there, there are obviously other barriers as well. So one other example is, is that DNA implementations of chemical reaction networks use fuels, and the fuels tend to be multi-stranded, and so it's difficult to actually prepare the fuels uh, while avoiding copies of the individual strands that make up the fuels from being present. Uh, so if you could compute without multi-stranded fuels, maybe that would make the process easier. Uh, and I'm sure others among you also could come up with other good reasons why we're having difficulty with scaling up and, and then what we could do about that. But, but the two examples I think I've given of leak and of multi-stranded fuels are examples where, again, theoretical work can provide insight and maybe help solve the problem. So I was wondering, is there any fundamental theoretical limits that why um, you think we should move away from solving MP problems? Yes. <laughs> I think there are fundamental theoretical limits. And the limit is that any algorithm that we know of to solve an MP-complete problem either requires uh, exponential time or an exponential amount of parallelism. And that exponential barrier is insurmountable. So Len Edelman, just to be concrete, he solved an instance of the Hamiltonian path problem. And if you've got a graph with n nodes, there could be you know, up to n factorial paths or, or ways to order the nodes that would get you from one start node to a finish node. And that, you know, that's a lot of paths for n equals three or four. It's not that many paths, you know, maybe a dozen or so paths. And that's what Len Edelman, that was the scale of the problem that Len Edelman solved. But if you, uh, if n is like 50, it's going to be a crazy amount of paths, way more than we could ever fit in the Pacific Ocean. You know, so <laughs> there's just no way we're going to, to, unless we come up with some huge theoretical advance that shows P is equal to NP or something, we're never going to get around that barrier. So I, I think the, the real applications of DNA computing are more likely to be the, because we can compute in wet environments as opposed to that we can compete with silicon on purely abstract problems, combinatorial problems like the NP-complete problems. 
So I think that's one shift that we've seen over the last, oh, what are we now? 27 years, uh, getting on to 28, um, is, is the move away from the idea that we can solve NPP problems with this and use them more for those sorts of practical purposes. Have you noticed any other big changes um, in our fields? Absolutely. So, er, I mean, the work I've been talking about is, is the work that I've been involved in mostly myself. But right from the start, there was uh, lots of excitement around DNA uh, nanostructures and building programmable structures. One of the things I think that's wonderful about DNA is it's not just an information storage material, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's got other properties that we can harness to build 2D structures, to build 3D structures, to build dynamic robots that can move around in environments that we create. So all of those uh, capabilities of DNA have led to wonderful directions of research well beyond what, what I work on myself. Do you miss doing the kind of more traditional computer science research um, and non-molecular programming stuff? I find there's plenty of beautiful theory problems to work on in DNA computing. And I also happen to really like the community. Yeah, so I, 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 I don't miss the other side of theory that much, to be honest. I, I'm not completely divorced from it, but I'm happy where I am. What points of overlap do you see between kind of the chemical reaction network and strand displacement side of the field and the structural DNA nanotech side of the field? How could we kind of be working closer together um, hmm. to, to solve big problems in DNA structure design and computation design. Interesting. How do we? How could we use? How could we use those fields to solve DNA structure prediction problems? <laughs> Great question. Uh, probably a bigger question than I've thought about carefully. Um, obviously, people who are designing DNA nanostructures um, could benefit from structure prediction programs. And if they have data, that data could inform structure prediction pro programs. So in particular, uh, DNA origami structures are pseudo-knotted. And often experimentalists have intuition about the order in which strands bind to each other, but they don't necessarily know for sure. So I think there's synergy there. Uh, between DNA structure prediction advances and understanding how DNA origami works. Um, also, a recent thread of research in chemical reaction networks is to and DNA strand displacement systems is to implement them on surfaces, which is you know an interesting tie back to where I got started in the field. And there, you know, it's possible again we'll see synergy between. DNA lattices and DNA nanostructures that have the capability of sort of running chemical reaction networks on top. So that could be another interesting synergy. I mean, ultimately, if these computing systems are in wet environments, they're going to be supported by some structure. So I think there could be a lot of room for creativity there. So I want to move on to some of your work for advocacy for women in computer science. So just looking at my own university, um, even 10 years ago, the admissions demographics were 3% of, of admissions to computer science were, were women. It's a lot better compared to that now. It's up to 24%. But what do you think are some of the biggest reasons why computer science continues to be so unequal in, in this sense. Yeah, that's that's shocking that it was only three three percent ten years ago, but it's good to hear that it's gone up. I think one of the really sad phenomena when I was um, maybe a graduate graduate student and also an assistant professor in those years of my career was this concept of a shrinking pipeline. That while other fields were slowly making progress in in, in attracting women to the field computer science was going in the opposite direction. So I was fortunate to get into the field when it wasn't unusual, that unusual for women to get in. But then gradually 
we saw this sh- this shrink. And I, I think part of it is just the culture around computing and around computing technology. So when I got into computing, nobody had a computer at home. But gradually that happened and the dynamics around how computers are used at home and who uses the computer and how they're designed and so on. And the whole culture around using computers, I think, res- uh, resulted in uh, boys being more interested in girls in getting into computing. I think another problem is that often in high schools, there isn't a great education program around computing. And if there is one, it's not really intellectually that interesting. Uh, So it, again, might not attract the most uh, talented or smart people because they're more interested, they might be more interested in other sciences or mathematics or something than um, coding which can be rewarding, but can also uh, be a bit mind-numbing, especially in cert- certain environments, uh, the, way, the way it's done. So I think there, th- there is a lot of reasons why girls and young women opted not to get into computer science. And so um, I think you're asking, how could we do better? So I've I've been interested in that question for a long time, and and partly that's why I'm at UBC, because UBC has had a much higher percentage of women in our programs than other comparable departments across North America, for sure. And one person who was a real catalyst for making that happen was Maria Clave, who was a department head at UBC long before I got to UBC. And this was an important agenda for her. Um, and she did many things to encourage women to, to come into computer science. And one of them was to, to build more combined programs between computer science and other sciences and also in fields in the arts. And so um, a lot of she also had a second degree program so that students who got a degree in one field and then wanted to get to add computer science to their skill set could in a two-year co-op supported program so that they could manage financially, they could combine whatever it was they were trained in with computer science and, and reposition themselves for the marketplace for their for the work. So those types of initiatives at UBC, I think, have drawn a lot of undergraduate women to our programs. Um, at the graduate level, we're probably percentage-wise not that different from other departments, unfortunately. Um, although we continue to try to recruit great graduate students. When creating these combined programs, um, how do you go about teaching computer science to somebody who's coming from history versus biology? Is is it any different? Or do you kind of have a a similar philosophy for bringing people in who maybe haven't been planning to do this for a long time? So we're a a very large uh, public university that's not extremely well-funded. So we have to be pragmatic. We've tried a lot of different things about how to get people going initially. Um, For our second degree program, we did have separate streams of our classes. There were the same classes and actually the same exams, but they would be a separate section for students that were in our second degree program. That was initially, but by now actually they're in the same room as everybody else. So that kind of went by the wayside eventually. Um, We tried uh, and continue to offer um, more of a a Dr. Rackett-based intro to programming course. So it's using a language that's considered to be very good pedagogically in terms of understanding computer science concepts. And it's also a language that even the most veteran high school programming team person probably hasn't programmed in. So it puts people on a more equal footing when they come in the door. Um, So that class has turned out to work very well for um, students from all kinds of departments. And it's a very, very, very big class. We have many sections. We also use undergraduate TAs in our classes. And we're careful, the people who run this class, I've never actually taught it myself, but they're careful to choose TAs who have done well in the class and who come from all the different departments uh, and are very good communicators. 
So they don't have to be at the very top of the class in terms of their grade, but they have to be really good at working with other students that are coming in from these other fields. So that cohort of TAs is another mechanism, I think, that makes it possible for those students coming in to thrive and feel like they belong in the class. So we're always constantly, we're in our department. Again, I love my department. Um, we're a great research department, but the attention that people pay to these questions at every level and constantly trying to improve what we're doing um, and assessing what we're doing, um, I think over time it makes a big difference. I just want to say I love that you're using Dr. Rackett. Scheme was one of my favorite languages when, when I was first learning to program. I, I will say that not everybody likes it. and so And also as the program has grown, we do have to... We offer multiple uh, tracks into the program. Uh, so some students just prefer to use object-oriented languages. And some students are very focused on what's their first summer job going to be, and they can't see why we're teaching them Dr. Racket. So now we do offer alternatives. But uh, the Dr. Racket scheme uh, class is still the biggest and most common class for people to take at the first year level. Yeah. It's nice. So you said you also started out using that or you? Um, not Dr. Racket, but um, I, I did. There was a period of time where I, I used Scheme quite a bit. I think um, I think it was a Guile Scheme, but um, yeah. So I think it's really impressive what you've been doing at UBC. Are you finding that your approach is starting to spread to other universities or do you think we still need to make fundamental structural changes kind of at say I, I don't know the national level and international level yeah I think we still have a long long ways to go before we have parity in our programs um, and yeah certainly in the U.S. and Canada there would be national conferences where people compare notes there are programs uh, funded, for example, like by the National Science Foundation and other organizations that um, keep trying to push the envelope. And it's not just women. It's also in the U.S. African-Americans, across uh, North American indigenous people, people of color. Um, we, need, we need to do more to attract uh, a broader segment of the population because computers and, and computing is is affecting our world and affecting our society in unprecedented ways. And it's really important to have a broad diversity of voices at the table as we develop products and assess their impact on our world. And I think that um, those these issues we're talking about, they kind of apply beyond computer science as well. So for um, lots of different STEM subjects, particularly engineering, mathematics, etc. Do you think that, I think you kind of addressed this a bit earlier, but do you think that there are structural issues that are particular to computer science, or do you think they're the same issues across all of these subjects? I think it can be quite particular from subject to subject. Um, so indeed, the computing culture, I think, is an issue um, for computer science more so than other fields. It's also very, very dependent on where you grow up and what culture you're in. So I think I, I understand best the, the North American situation, but in Eastern European countries, actually, it can be there. There is often parity in computer science programs, um, and even in uh, faculty representation, women women's representation on faculty. So it does differ across countries and it, you're right it differs across fields and I think each field has to think carefully about what is going on in their field so you you mentioned mathematics as an example so as in undergrad mathematics programs we are very close to parity between women and men's participation however at the graduate and postdoctoral levels again you'll see much fewer women participating and I think a problem for mathematics um, is is the and other sciences actually, particularly the biological sciences, is sort of the number of years of training you need before you're employable. Um, the number of postdocs you need in computer science, we're very fortunate. Um, you can you can get a degree, you can go straight on to grad school, you can work for a while, you can come back to grad school, you can get a master's degree, you can get a PhD, you can go straight into a faculty position, 
or a research lab with a PhD, or you can decide to do a postdoc. And um, I think there, every computer science department is hiring. So if you want an, an academic position and you're trying to hire like UBC is right now, you're going to have to work very hard to get the candidate to come, the candidate that you really want. And so I think people have a lot of uh, negotiating power to make sure that when they come, they're set up well for success. So those are good things about computer science that, you know, things we don't need to worry about, but other like mathematics really has to concern itself, I think, with the level of representation of women at the postdoc level and how then that ultimately affects the representation of women at the faculty level. So that's an example of differences across two fields. So I'm curious, um, like as a faculty member, you're leading your, your research group. What is your philosophy of leading a research group? Like, what is your group like? Yeah. Uh, so I have a fairly small group because I don't have a ton of funding. Um, and I have uh, a group of students. We meet together. Uh, actually, right now, our group is meeting twice a week. So we're talking with each other a lot. Uh, and um, it's very cooperative. I mean, everybody, it's a real team. It feels wonderful. Um, there's people in the team have different backgrounds. So we're learning a lot from each other. I also have a postdoc. Um, that's much more at the moment of a one-on-one -on -one, um, advising situation or collaboration, I guess, because that's really what it is at this point is collaboration um, because it's just a very different problem area than the, the, the little group that's working together. I guess my philosophy is we want to do good work. We want to collaborate with other people in the field that um, can help us because it's such an interdisciplinary field, help, help us make sure we're working on the right problems. Um, the ultimate goal is to do high quality work. I worry less about pushing papers out, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question or if you've got other thoughts or things you're wondering about. Um, I'm wondering, like, um, does your style of leading your research group has changed over time? Style or philosophy, or if there's any change that happens, what leads to the change of how you lead your group? I don't think for me there have been huge changes. Uh, I do, again, reflect on what I do, and I, I learn from what other people in my department are doing. One thing that I think is really valuable is to um, check in maybe once or twice a year and just step back and say, how is this working for, for the students? Uh, some other advisors that I know actually will team up. So two different advisors with two completely different groups will meet with the opposite person's group and just try to get, get a conversation going and then report back anonymously about you know, what the students think is working well or what could work better. Um, so I don't quite do that, but I do like to step back and try to figure out how things are working for students over time. I think I'm more attuned to mental health issues than I was early on. And I think that's a super important aspect of uh, being a good advisor in graduate school, because I think it's a very, it can be a very challenging environment for students. Yeah. And I, I also feel that it's, um, it's very important, like for to find the right match between a student and advisor. But sometimes it's not clear, like how, like, at the very beginning, how do I know if that will be a right match or not? Do you have any suggestions for like a fresh graduate students when they find advisors? I agree. I think it's it's definitely probably the most important relationship in in your career is that relationship with your advisor. And if it's and it's often not a good relationship and that that's really a, a challenging situation. I, I I I was extremely fortunate to have an amazing advisor. And so I took that totally for granted when I was a student, a graduate student. And I didn't appreciate how difficult it can be for students where there isn't a good match until later on. And I think I started to appreciate that more just because when I'd be at conferences or other 
environments, people would often come up and ask me what could they do about the situation they were in, or even at whatever institution I was at. Um, often it would be women would come up to my office and cry and like, how are they going to, to get through the situation they're in? And so I, I have heard a lot of individual experiences about how difficult that can be. So what do you do, like, how do you make sure you have a good advisor really is your question, and then maybe what do you do if you're in a tricky situation? Um, so there's no foolproof answer to the first question, but definitely if, you know, once you're accepted into a graduate program, it's obviously, if often you're um, accepted into a specific advisor, and it's really important, if at all possible, to go actually and meet the advisor. Uh, certainly, you would want to talk to them on Zoom, if, if that's, or, or some other online system, if, if you can't go visit. It's also really helpful to talk to the students of that advisor, including students who have already graduated, and ask the students what their experience was. Different institutions work differently. At UBC, every graduate student in our department comes in with a preliminary advisor assignment, but there's an understanding that you can switch advisors if you want. So uh, most students are, t are taking a lot of classes in the first year. It could simply be they take a class they get super excited about and they want to work on something else. Or it could be that they come in and they realize maybe actually they're a better fit with another advisor, and so they want to switch. So it's not too hard to do that early on. So it's in an ideal scenario, you could go to an institution like that. But a lot of institutions, it's much more tricky to switch advisors once you, you go in and the advisor is funding you and it, it, it make, the funding situation can make it tricky to, to switch. Um, but of course, you can always go to another program. If things are really bad, I think that's, that's one option. I, I have a friend who went to five different graduate programs before she found the one she wanted. And she's like this amazing role model for me. So, you know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not, it's doable. You can switch if you're really unhappy with the situation you're in. Um, but of course, sometimes it's sort of by year three or four of a PhD that people realize they're really, really want to get out of the situation they're in. And at that point, my advice would be just tough it out and get out as fast as you can and find a good postdoc position so that you have another year or two to um, grow professionally before you find yourself, say, as a faculty position. So sometimes the right thing to do is stick with it and just get out as quick as you can. Um, other practical strategies is are you, you usually will have a committee, so there'll be other people on the committee and you can maybe those people can help advocate for you if, um, You've got certain issues with your advisor. I mean, some advisors just don't give you any feedback. You're waiting for feedback on a draft of your thesis, you know, and it's not coming. How are you going to deal with that? Or some advisor gives you tons of feedback, but is such a perfect perfectionist that you're not sure how you're going to, you just like, it's good enough. I want to get out. So sometimes you just have to use other committee members uh, and talk to them one-on-one -on -one is, you know, say, talk about your concerns and hope that, that uh, they will help advocate for you in a committee meeting and help you sort through some of these challenges. And of course, there are even worse situations of sexual harassment and so on that are extremely serious but do arise um, and can t take people by surprise and be a real shock. And of course, in situations like that, you need to talk to someone um, uh, who can give you a lot of support and has a lot of has a lot of experience. So those situations have to be taken extremely seriously and are very can be very tricky to navigate and can be devastating. In your mentoring of PhD students, I mean, do you typically find yourself um, recommending that they go for depth or breadth? I guess the field is becoming more interdisciplinary. I wonder if your, I wonder if this is like, you know, if your recommendations have been changing over the years. I, I think I, I let them go with whatever they're best at. Um, I, I definitely try to find projects that are, are a good fit with the interests and the talents of the individuals. 
So it, it's all over the map, I would say. Some very theoretical projects, some you know, projects involved a lot of software development once an algorithm has been designed and curating databases, building websites and that kind of thing. So it can be quite broad or it can be quite narrow. Um, so I also do collaborate. I, I supervise students who are co-supervised by other people. So that's another way for, for students to get breadth uh, of experience. So you, you talked a lot about kind of the challenges and you mentioned mental health. I know in my own PhD, even though I had a great relationship with my advisor, um, you know, it's not just about that. And I know I struggled a lot and so my mental health issues got worse. Do you think this, and I know that this is the case for a, a surprisingly large amount of people. I, I don't want to bring up a statistics. I can't remember exactly, but do you think this is fundamental to the experience of a PhD? Is it just the way that these things are or are there things we could be doing better there are certainly things we could be doing better and i i expect that it it i expect that it's not uncommon in a phd so i'm not sure it's fundamental but it's probably always going to be not uncommon i mean what when it's taking a fairly big risk with the phd you're embarking on a research project nobody knows how it's going to pan out uh, Things can go wrong. Experiments can fail. You can be scooped and someone else can, you know, come up with the same result just as you're about to, to get to, to, the, to, to the key part of what you want to do. So I think those things are stressful. Um, a lot of work sometimes is fairly solitary, and, and so the isolation can be another factor. Um, so what can we do about those things? I think talking about them can help. Having a support network can help. Knowing that you're not the only one um, going through that same process, I think, can help. Another challenge can be motivation, especially when you're feeling stuck and things aren't going well. I think maybe that relates back to Georgia's point of um, working on different things. So if, if you've got more than one project going and one isn't going well, maybe you can make more progress with another project. Uh, or if you're working um, as in some sort of teaching or educational role, that can be a nice complement to what you're doing in your research or in the lab. Yeah. So I think it's, it's going to be a hard road at some level. Uh, but maybe most key of all would be just the support system you have around you to help you through all of that. I mean, you can often have great family and friends, but they often don't have a clue what you're doing. And so they're great support, but they're not, they don't really understand what you're going through in the same way that you, that hopefully you can, your support network will. And again, there, within a department, there can be informal support networks, uh, and, but also at the national level, there can be support networks, especially uh, for women. And at conferences, there can be that can be a place where you can build a support network too, I think. Shumesh, you had a really great relationship with your advisor as a grad student. What do you remember from, from being a grad student? Um, do you have any good, bad memories from them? Yeah, I have very positive memories of being a grad student. Uh, so I was a grad student at the University of Washington, and I got there. Uh, I, I, that was the only school, actually, in, North Amer in the U.S. that accepted me as a grad student. And fortunately, a few of my friends were also accepted there. There was somebody else from our institution that had gone there the previous year to do statistics, and she was amazing. And so they decided that Irish women were worth investing in, and four of us got accepted <laughs> for my class. So we all went together, we lived together, and um, we had a fantastic experience. But again, we had this built-in support network that, again, I took totally for granted. Um, so we had a lot to learn. I mean, coming from Ireland, I didn't have much of a computer science background, and I had a lot of catch-up to do in grad school. Uh, my but I love theory, and I, I, I had this good math background, so that, that served me well in getting into more theory work. My advisor gave me a lot of scope in terms of what to work on, so the first couple of projects I started to work on 
were, were flops. I wasn't really making much progress, but then he would suggest some other topic. And finally, we, I found something that I could make progress on. So I think that stood out in terms of his, his faith in me and his trust that I would do well once I found the right topic was really important. Another thing I remember very strongly about working with him was sometimes he would say something very positive about what I was doing or about me. And he would do that about all of his students. But every time he spoke positively about someone, it was very specific, like it was something unique to them. And I, it felt very genuine just the way he would do that. So I think that was, that was huge in terms of bolstering my confidence, uh, which was, it was, was something I badly needed, I think, getting through the PhD program. And he was also a, just a very relaxed, he was a more senior person and he was just, he had good pers- more perspective. He, he was very relaxed and funny. So I, I, and he wasn't in a rush for me to finish or to push papers out or whatever. So I think that really helped me too. So yeah, those were all very positive aspects. There was also a good community in the department uh, in terms of outings and trips and social events and so on. So all of that was hugely helpful for me coming in from another country and trying to figure out how things worked. That, that sounds really, really positive. And I guess that really helped set you up on your career going forwards. What did you notice changed over time, you know, going from being a grad student to postdoc to head of department and fellow of the Royal Society of Canada? What's changed over that course of time? Yeah, so... I think because I had such a great experience as a grad student, also because I had grown up in the Irish um, educational system, I was quite a bit younger than the average student by the time I got a PhD, not because I had skipped any grades or anything, just sort of the way my trajectory went. And then I went straight into a faculty position, so I didn't have a postdoc. So I started my faculty position at age 25. And I I would say that was a mistake. (laughs) And it set me up for uh, a lot of struggles in the few years after that. Um, I was in a a department, a wonderful department at the University of Wisconsin, but it was a very applied department and there were very few theoreticians. So I was very isolated there. And the people in my department didn't really understand technically what I was doing. And the, the work was really theoretical. And so... And I also, I had a lot of challenges um, during those years. So I was definitely struggling the first few years. So it was a completely different experience. And I was definitely unhappy, but I couldn't put my finger on why I was unhappy. When I kind of broke it down, I was like, well, I, I like research. I like teaching. I like service. So I couldn't quite figure out why I wasn't thriving in this environment. Um, but fortunately, um, things turned around and things got a lot better there, in part because of uh, another faculty member there, another woman who was more senior than me, who uh, really stepped in and sort of helped me figure out what was going on and how I could turn things around. So there, were, there was, there's a lot to that story, but in the end, I found my footing and you know, just by pure chance, the research area I was in suddenly became, there was like this amazing result and it changed everything overnight. Like the, the subfield I was working in just coincidentally just became super hot and super exciting. And there were articles in the New York Times about this obscure area of theory, computer science. And so when I came up for tenure, like my area, everybody had to say, yeah, these are important problems. She's not just, you know, dug herself into a deep hole of the theory of theory that's irrelevant. Like this was important work. And um, I, I was, I had sort of figured out how to navigate the academic world. And so I got tenure and, um, but that was certainly a different, very different phase of my career. Um, Then once I got tenure, I think I, I did get involved in a lot more leadership roles. And part of it, I mean, it, was all, it wasn't like I decided that's what I wanted to do. It was all a very natural sort of process where um, 
because of my own experiences, um, there were organizations that support women in computer science or recruit women into computer science. And so, you know, they approached me and asked if I'd be interested in joining. And of course I was, and I got to run programs, for example, to, to get uh, young women into uh, computer science research, um, you know, pair up uh, young uh, undergraduates in computer science with mentors at a research institution so that they could get into research. That was really rewarding and a way to help others. But I was benefiting as much myself as all of those participants were because I was part of this group of women who were leading these projects and they were further along than I was career-wise and they were just amazing role models and just being with those people um, and becoming their friends and figuring out how we wanted to make a difference was super rewarding and supporting for for me so that was definitely another phase and then of course I moved institutions Um, eventually I decided UBC was a better match for me so I moved to UBC I still love UBC. I think it's an amazing place. So um, and there, obviously, once you get to a certain stage in your career, um, it's natural to step up and be department head or something in our department. That's more of a thing you rotate through. Everybody kind of has to take their turn. So I was happy to do that. And now I've kind of done those things. And what I like doing the most now is doing research with my students. So I stay out of department politics. And I, you know, I've been head, I've had my turn to influence things. And now I stay out of it unless, you know, when you're young, you're always like, things could be better. Why aren't we doing this? And now I just stay out of all of that unless someone asks me and I let all the young people, they have great ideas and I let them figure it all out. So this is, this is my favorite part of the career. (laughs) This is where all the big payoff comes. You can just have fun. You don't need to prove anything to anyone. You can still work with the most amazing students on the planet and enjoy the process. It's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's the best, at least to me, the best part of academia. I was wondering whether you have a set of good and bad reasons to go into academia. Like if someone came up to you and said, I want to do it because of X, when would you say, no, that's a bad idea? Yeah, I've had students who tell me that that's what they want to do because that's what their parents did. That's a bad idea. If that's your primary reason, it's a bad idea. I think the key aspects of academia are research and teaching. So if you love at least one of those two things and you're good at the other one, I think then academia is a good place to be. When I was growing up in Ireland, I think it was very much a culture where you did what you were told. And in many ways, it was that to an extreme degree. When I was in high school, I went to a convent boarding school. and We had Sunday blazers and we, there was a big pocket on our blazer. And emblazoned on the pocket were the words, do whatever he tells you, which is apparently the only quote by uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, that was in the Bible. So that was the quote that was sort of our, our school motto. So that just gives you an idea of how sort of conditioned I was to do what I was told and to be good growing up. Um, and so I never really thought I would like to be, I, I guess I see an academic career as one where you make decisions about what you want to do. You don't do what you were told. You don't do something to please others. So I would say, Looking back, it's surprising to me that I ended up in academia because I I didn't see myself as someone who needed space to to decide what I wanted to do. But when I look back, I'm so grateful that I ended up in academia where I can decide what I want to work on, who I want to work with, what I want to teach. And I can, there's always something exciting going on. Um, You know, it's hard at times because there's high standards and you, you need to, you know, you're always berating yourself because you're not, you know, you don't think you're good enough or the work you're doing is, you know, you could be better, but actually having sort of being in a part of a peer group where there are high standards is another thing I really like about academia because it's so there's sort of always that support for being your best and not giving up on being your best. So 
there's all kinds of reasons why I really like academia and why maybe I'm a little surprised that I like it as much as I do. But yeah, it's definitely a good environment for me. So I want to end on um, uh, a question. Um, what excites you about the future of molecular programming? What excites me is the possibilities of programming materials other than silicon. I think when people think of computer science today, by and large, they think about silicon-based computing, and they don't realize that the intellectual foundations of the field can have implications and applications that go far, far beyond computing as we know it today. And in the early days of computing, I don't think people understood just how impactful and how far-reaching the concepts would be as the technologies developed, then the capabilities of the technologies developed. So today, I think we're still in the very early days of molecular programming and DNA computing. And we still don't really know where the field will go and what its real impact will be. But I'm very confident that it will have enormous impact somehow, someday, and that's very inspiring to me. There's also the concern that it could have negative impact. Um, and I think, I and I hope that the field, people in the field will, will be cognizant of that possibility and uh, do what we can to avoid harm. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. And I also hope that we take the lead from synthetic biologists in trying to think about the potential negative impacts as well as the obviously hopeful, very positive impacts we can have. Thank you so much for joining us, Anne. Stay tuned to our newsletter for details on our next podcast episodes. And thanks for listening.